This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steverosephd.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome to Pros and Concepts. Welcome. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that Steve is, again, fixated on, as he's talked about for many, <laughs> many years, <laughs> something I've actually kind of avoided myself because I've always been like, Ugh, codependence. But what do you want to say about codependence, Steve? How do we want to begin this? Well, I want to say that it's something that's been fascinating for me for several years. I have a background in sociology, and now I work in the addiction field and doing counseling. So there's a huge overlap between the concept concept of codependency and, I guess, social concerns, interpersonal concerns. Actually, if you look up codependency on Wikipedia, they put it in the sociology category for some reason. Really? Like literally on, on the top right corner, you know, they have like categories. Yeah. I don't know how it got in there because I would suspect that it's more psychologically related, but it's actually in the sociology category. Yeah, that's the problem though with a lot of these labels of disciplines is that we're kind of arbitrarily like the world is not neatly carved into different disciplines. We've just made them into that because like you and I used to argue when you were studying sociology and I was studying psychology what the difference is between sociology, psychology and like social psychology because they're related and I guess where we used to land was like sociology is like groups in general and psychology is individuals and then social psychology is looking at the individual when engaging in a group but it's like it's really split in hairs so i mean it can be any of these things is addiction considered sociological or psychological more psychological but more and more and i know you've read a book on on addiction about this it's very much a social concern the opposite of addiction some may say is connection and so connection is related to a social realm as well as connection to other things but i think maybe part of the reason why codependency is not in the psychology category is because there's no definition in psychology for it there's no formal definition in the diagnostic and statistical manual and so it makes sense maybe why it was put into this category because it largely exists kind of in the informal counseling discussions like it's it's kind of loosely related to counseling it's it's most talked about in the addiction field and kind of related to the 12-step approach it was really popular used in that and so there's no one definition in the 80s actually they tried to put it into the diagnostic and statistical manual uh, the dsm-3 revised version actually a fellow named cermac in 1986 published an article trying to propose a definition to get it in there but it didn't succeed and so actually part of his definition, he was trying to draw from borrowing diagnostic criteria from alcohol dependence, dependent personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, hysterionic personality disorder. And hysterionic? Post- yes. I think this is, yeah. this is back when they thought there was actually like an addictive personality, I think is what it sounds like there, right? Like it's a personality thing. Like, oh, I just have an addictive personality as you hear people still colloquially say, but that's not really a thing anymore, I don't think, right? Right. So initially they tried to get it kind of classified as this personality disorder even drawing on post-traumatic stress disorder, some symptoms from there. And 
Ultimately, it didn't go through, and the argument for it still didn't go through in the DSM-5, the current one as well. But it's still talked about, though. It's still relevant. It's still talked about, and that's actually probably one of the things that's going to stop it from being introduced into the DSM. The DSM, for those who aren't unaware, is the basically the psych bible for diagnosing people. It's what will say what is a disorder and how it's diagnosed. So if it changes, something that was a diagnosis can no longer be, and vice versa. I should also note, before we go too deep into this, that I've just had three shots for my trip to Brazil. So I'm a little sluggish today. If I'm a little slow, that's, that's just the reason why. So please forgive me on that. Nobody would have noticed if you just say it. Yeah, probably not. I mean, I just <laughs> want to kind of flag it because I can't remember which episode it was that I had the COVID booster shot and I felt like terrible <laughs> doing that one. <laughs> but I, listening back, like I couldn't really tell, but I thought it was evident. But anyway, back on to what we're talking about. That is the interesting thing. Where I was going with that was it's not going to be introduced because as we've talked about off air, codependence, it's got a negative connotation to it. It's got a stink to it because people will say, oh, they're codependent and like use it as a derisive term. So if you said I'm a codependent, people would, if they were familiar with this term, would probably see this as a negative thing. And that's something that psychology has been plagued with for years because say moron or idiot, these are words that used to be clinical terms for somebody with a low IQ. But then once it was used diagnostically, eventually it became a common term that people in just random situations knew meant low IQ. So then they started using it as an insult and it had this negative connotation. So psych wanted to be more, I guess, neutral, less negative in their terminology. Same with hysterical, I believe. They moved away from that because they don't want that to be, like, we're not going to use a diagnostic term like, this guy's a moron, like when everyone would use that as an insult. So the, the words evolve as we go on. And I think in the same way, codependence has this negative connotation among people. So if it does appear in the DSM, it will be something, probably a different term altogether, likely. What do you think? Yeah, I think that that's probably accurate. And I guess it's negative connotation may have come from its overusage because it, it was very popular in, in 12-step where maybe some people kind of would make assumptions that stereotypically the wife of the addict or alcoholic or the husband, but it's usually stereotypically and statistically the other way around, but was the codependent. They would kind of make that assumption because you are with someone who's an alcoholic, you must be codependent, which I don't think is nearly at all the case. Well, first, I mean, before we can go into that, we should probably talk about what the symptoms are, what the signs are. Right. Because we're assuming that people kind of have a general idea of what it is right now. And if they've never heard the word, they're probably like, okay, just like, what is this thing? Or they're probably Googling it already. But let's just go to our trusty Wikipedia. Yeah, this is one of the issues from this particular thing is that it's not well defined. It's one of those things, as you alluded to, that it may not actually even exist. And maybe several different disorders kind of lumped together for all we know. It's still being explored, but we do have some idea. Right. If it was in the DSM, I would be reading it from the DSM, let's just say. But here's a general set of traits that we're talking about. So definitions vary, but include high self-sacrifice, focusing on others' needs, a suppression of one's own emotions, I would argue, and needs, attempts to control or fix other people's problems, and very much associated with low self-esteem. And low self-esteem, I would argue, to the point where it's almost like a loss of a sense of self at its deepest. It's like, I don't even know who I am. It's complete living for other people or a person. And often, so this is, is seen in relationships with someone who is an addict, alcoholic, narcissistic relationships, really many forms of abusive relationships in general. But it, it really 
this term was most popularly used in in the addiction field for the spouses of of someone with issues. Yeah, I think this reminds me. I was thinking about this before we recorded that this kind of seems like it could be addiction to another person, just as you kind of talk about how in other places you've said that narcissism is kind of the addiction to ego or to themselves. I guess in a weird way. Right. Narcissism actually can be defined as addiction to esteem. That's the article by Baumeister who argues that. You can argue addiction to oneself, addiction to one's self-image. And codependency, we can argue, is addiction to a person, addiction to trying to fix someone else, obsessed over trying to fix someone else. Yeah. To me, it seems like it very much overlaps with what people can refer to colloquially or just casually as savior complexes. Like you feel the need to fix or to help or you can't stand to see somebody suffering. So you want to step in and do something for them. But it's a tricky thing because in these situations, yeah, you do want to help people. Of course, you want to alleviate the suffering if you can. But sometimes allowing somebody to struggle just a little bit longer and figure it out themselves is much more the compassionate thing to do. So it's one of those lines where I find people can struggle with figuring out where that line falls. And it's even harder to have that line or that boundary, personal boundary, one may say. We can define that after. But in a romantic relationship or or a marriage where maybe there's kids involved and you've developed a life together, your finances are intertwined, maybe you have a business together and there's more at stake. Yeah, well, I mean, not just a mesh. I was actually thinking about that word. I wasn't sure. It was like that word I think is related, but I can't remember. It's related very much, but I'm talking about just people's lives are integrated together and have been so for a while. There's kids, family, house, and it's hard to just let them fail. Like, well, no, if they fail, I can lose everything. If they fail, I'll be embarrassed. If they fail, like... I'm in trouble. What will it say about me if if they fail kind of thing too? And like, or I can't survive without them. It's a lot of, I don't want to make this seem like I'm blaming them, but it's it seems like giving away your ability to function because you feel like you, you need this other person absolutely. So that person becomes really like your full-time job. Like, and some people might even leave their job. They might like spend their whole time just caretaking. Or the opposite. They are working three jobs and the person that's addicted is not working at all. Oh, that too. That too, completely. I mean, that's the problem with this whole thing is that it's a lot of like either extremely on one side or extremely on the other. Either the codependent is extremely controlling and dictating everything or they're completely at the whim of what their partner wants and they are just like a complete slave. That's what the problem with this is. is like it's very black and white. It's either going to be really all the way up to 100 or down to zero, but very little in between. Right. Yeah. So the, this very kind of controlling, it could even be very passive aggressive controlling. So it could be a kind of a combination of both of those extremes together where somebody is like nagging and complaining, but they're completely being controlled and dictated by or independent on the state of that other person. If that person's in trouble, they're going out to go save them, bring them back home, put them to bed, then yell at them. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it's all of it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, after reading the book, like, so I basically sped read the book yesterday, Codependent No More. Right. That's the most popular book of I met Melanie Beattie on this topic, and it comes from kind of a 12-step flavor. Yeah. She identifies herself as an addict and a codependent. She's been in both situations, it seems. I mean, she also does not present herself as an expert. I mean, it's a very popular book on this topic, so it seems like she's got some good insight. So I want to make it clear, though, again, that not every partner of someone with an addiction is this. It could be very widely overused and it doesn't take away from a person being a legitimate victim in a situation who actually sees it for what it is and actually wants out and is kind of working through how to do that. There's various levels of insight among partners of persons with addictions from the highly insightful people who are maybe in counseling themselves 
talking about like what they can do about it versus codependence, which is the other extreme, which is little to no insight. And insight in psychology is defined as one's awareness or understanding of what's actually going on that is affecting their, their lives. And the opposite of insight, I guess, is denial. So extreme codependence is a state of denial. And then this final state would be ignorance, not being aware at all. Because denial means like you're choosing not to be aware of it, whereas insight is like being aware. So like there's three states, I guess, knowing but pushing it away, knowing and acknowledging it and not knowing. I remember what I was about to say is that reading that book reminded me of things in my past that have happened where, and this is the problem with a lot of these things too, again, is like it's not firmly defined and like most psych things, if it's not a problem, then it's not diagnosable. Or at least if it's not interfering with your life or causing negative effects on you or those around you, then it may not be a disorder where somebody else with the same criteria and it is affecting their life could be a disorder. So it really is dependent on the context. But what I was thinking was, I just saw a lot of these elements and this is something that you want to be careful of when you're listening to this. If you do see an overlap with your own life, it's not necessarily a bad thing. These elements will come and go in relationships and sometimes in moderation, they can be healthier. Like if somebody's having a particularly hard time, it's just when it becomes more full-blown and kind of all-encompassing that it's an issue. So like, for instance, I had one ex where for whatever reason, she would throw a fit whenever she wanted my attention. I would give it to her willingly otherwise, but I guess I was working too much or too fixated on other things. So she would make a fight or cause a problem or like have a meltdown about something because then it would get her more attention. And she even acknowledged this. This is not me putting that on her. It's her having acknowledged it herself. If it had been more successful or I'd bought really into it, it could have become a codependent relationship full blown. And since then, actually, this is the story I was, I didn't tell you about. I am still trying to find the line between that because you want to help people people, but you don't want to be like something that they can't live without. You want to enable people to be good at the things they need to be good at, right? Like I can't do your job for you. I can help guide you in how to think about this, but you still have to do it yourself. And an example of this was a friend had taken too much. She, she basically texted me and said that she was having a hard time and she was like, I, I need help. And I'm like, okay, well, what is it? What, what do you need help with? And it turns out she had taken far too much THC oil. So if it had been something else that was more dangerous, I probably would have gone immediately. But as I found out that it was almost certainly not dangerous, just emotionally fraught for sure. But I was like, I have to go somewhere and feed these cats because I was just on my way to do that and I was already late to feed them. And that's going to take me like at least a half hour and then it'll take me another 20 minutes to get there. And in the past with other girlfriends, similar circumstances have happened where I rushed over to try to help. And in doing so, I ended up coming across a locked door because they've already fallen asleep, which is the only thing to do in that context. If you overdose on THC, which isn't really an overdose, it's just more like you'll feel uncomfortable, you might vomit and then you'll probably just pass out is not much to do besides get some water and get comfortable and fall asleep and then you'll sleep it off. So it's one of these things. And then she was actually very angry at me for not coming to help because I should have come and been there for her. And I'm like, this is me possibly overcorrecting in the opposite direction that maybe I should have gone to do something for her. But in the context, it seemed like she stopped responding by the time I fed the cat. So I was like, all right, she fell asleep and did the thing that she was going to need to do anyway. And so I just let it lie. But even now I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what I should have done in the context. Right. So that's you kind of grappling with potential codependence and not disordered levels, which don't exist because it's not a diagnostic criteria, but you're trying to find the balance between appropriate helping behaviors. Yeah. Cause that's what this is, right? Like it's, it's the whole gradient between like completely ignoring somebody and doing everything for them. We have to find a fine line in there that is acceptable and enabling without being like coddling. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's a huge thing in the counseling field because your job is literally to help people and walk that line while doing so. And when you start working harder than the client, meaning you're spending more time like obsessing over 
a client thinking about their problems, strategizing for solutions, calling numbers, applying for things for them, doing things for them, worrying about them. Like when the work is more for you than them, that's that's massive red flag, but not getting to that point ideally and, and recognizing that this person needs to kind of do it themselves and not as like a tough love they got to do it themselves type of approach, but one that actually facilitates intrinsic motivation, as we've talked about in the past. A sense of autonomy, a sense of control over one's actions actually gets you more motivated. So if somebody's doing it all for you, then you feel controlled, you kind of do the opposite. And we talked about that in motivational interviewing, of how this technique has developed in the addiction field exactly for this purpose. Hmm. It's kind of like the whole, you can lead them to water, but you can't make them drink. But it, like a codependent person might lead them to water and then put a funnel down their throat and try to force them to drink it or might hook up an IV to like make it so they're doing it. And like you're just forcing them to do something they don't want to. This actually reminds me of like in the past, I used to try to do this sort of thing too, where like say I wanted to play D&D and it's like a very high investment kind of game. Like you need to do a lot of research and know what you're doing to some degree, like it to be invested and just doing it all for everybody, making everybody's character and just saying like, okay, let's play. And those games never go well. I would never recommend doing that because even though the people are like, yeah, okay, if you if you do everything, then I'll play. No, that's a terrible idea. People will just not follow through. And this is the same with like business or other things. Like if you just give something of high value to somebody, they won't value it as much. If you have a course you make that is like super valuable and they say, oh, I really would love to do that. And you're like, all right, here, you can have it for free. They probably won't go through it. They'll probably just leave it and not do anything. But if they paid like even half the usual price, they are much more likely to actually do it. So you, you want personal investment in these things and that's i think where a lot of codependency kind of falls apart because like if you're doing everything for everybody then you feel like if i'm not there they're gonna fall apart and they're gonna just drown immediately but the thing is like when people are forced to sink or swim on their own they're more likely to start actually trying to tread water than just sinking like a stone yeah and that's why the concept of enabling is often associated with codependence it's a way that it's not only not helpful but it can actually be actively destructive it can actually enable the addiction to get worse because the person is not experiencing natural consequences like if you're running around picking up all the slack, fixing everything, putting out fires, and the person's able to kind of just keep doing what they're doing, then, you know, maybe why, why change? Why would they change, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's not only just not useful, but it, it contributes often to the addiction spiraling. And the word enabling, I guess, is sometimes also used in, in a way that's like tough love approach or, or a little too overused, like kick him out, you know, like... Yeah, it has a more conservative bend to it. Right, like if, you, if your son is smoking weed in the basement at 18 years old, it's like, he's an adult, kick him out of there, he won't listen to your rules, like first time they get caught, you know, like it, it can be very <laughs> black and white. Yeah, and this is the thing is like a lot of this is, that video I sent you recently, it was like this guy, I was wondering what his take was he was talking about obesity and trying to convince people to not be and it's like okay what's his point is that well informed or not and I, I think a lot of it at the beginning was very cherry picked but at the end he had a good point where he's saying like he was following these weight loss things in the UK TV show reality TV things and how like childhood obesity and the parents were obese and trying to get the kids to not be and his point was you can't just come in and be like you're not going to do this anymore and like command them not to you have to build a relationship with the person you have to build respect with the person they have to feel 
feel that you respect them in order to even take anything you say and they have to respect you back. And then you can start possibly suggesting things appealing to their wants and avoiding their fears kind of motivation stuff. And it just seems like you can't just be like, yeah, you must not smoke pot because I said so. If they're doing that and they're not going to listen to you anyway, then there's something going on with the relationship that requires more discussion and more development, which is something that I see more conservative parents being either unable or unwilling to do. Your kids are kind of estranged from you to some degree. They, they relate with you a little bit, but like more, they tolerate the relationship and will leave as soon as they can. And it's like maybe one day they'll value it, which is the kind of the defense that's usually taken there. But in general, it's not open communication and it's not actual relation. So they will listen as long as they must. Like when a police officer is around, you won't jaywalk. But as soon as they're gone, they'll do whatever the hell they want. Right. Yeah. And so I guess the boundaries we're talking about and kind of being firm is not to help the other person necessarily heal so much as it is to help yourself start healing and help them start doing stuff for themselves because like kicking someone out of the house when they're struggling with addiction is going to introduce more instability to the situation and it's going to be harder in the beginning for the addict or for the person using the substance or who for both maybe even for both yeah because people need connection love support and in establishing a boundary it's not necessarily going to help that person at that time because they're going to feel like probably worse but for your own self, you know, because you're going to be just running yourself into the ground. And that's where personal boundaries come in when we're talking about not enabling someone. It's often a self-protection. Yeah. And further on enabling, I guess, is the other side. That's the problem with too progressive of parents. If I want to be a little more even-handed here, conservative parents might just be like from on high authoritarian, I believe is the parenting style, at least when I was studying psych. And that was just like, you'll do what I say because I said so. No, no reason. You just listen, which often these are kind of the parents that also want them to have like critical thinking and stuff. But it's like that kind of at odds. But then the further left parents, more progressive, permissive ones, which I believe is actually permissive parenting style, they might be full on enabling like here, you want some dope? Here you go. And like they might just like, we don't encourage you using it, but you're going to find it anyway. So here, have some. It's safer if you take mine. <laughs> like that's that's also an issue that would be on the other that's end of the it. the opposite version of, yeah, that's a that's a different form of enabling here for sure. But like I'm always cautious when using that word, especially in the addiction field. Enabling? Right. Because it can easily be received as like very tough love kick them out of there cut them off shame them and i I really don't want it to be perceived in that way that's the issue with a lot of these words right because like a lot of this is just a gradient like you don't want to be full-on kick them out tough love but you also don't want to be making sure like empowering them to continue doing the destructive behavior so it's like the whole Taoist like middle way you have to find what is the balance here yeah and and that is often the heart of counseling of, of family members and loved ones of the person with an addiction because there's no black and white answer of okay just do this you have to meet them where they're at figure out like what is the situation with the person how long have they been in it how much harm is it doing to their lives you know like, there's so many factors here and if only there was an article on the difference between helping and enabling i'm assuming you have one oh, wait. oh, oh, wait. oh this little. i forgot i, I wrote this whole little oh thing i forgot <laughs> So I literally wrote this article. So maybe if I just quickly go through the difference here. You can't remember? You just don't want to contradict your own article. No, there's a it's point form. There's like a lot of factors here. So enabling, I would argue, would be like lending money to someone with a gambling addiction. Like that's kind of in, in the generally clear territory of enabling. Maybe rare exceptions where it can make sense 
if you're controlling the finances and you're just kind of co-signing for a loan that they're going to pay the bookies off and it's a small amount. I don't know. Very dangerous. Yeah, it's, it's things like playing with fire. What about if they borrow money occasionally? Like, say it's something else, like not gambling, because gambling money is the drug. But suppose it's like, say, cocaine or something, something more high-end and expensive. And they tend to do a lot of it and they borrow money occasionally when they're a little bit short for their own bills, but then they always pay you back. Like, would you consider that still to be enabling? Oh, it's, it's difficult. I don't even know. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say because it's like, they're, uh, who, who, who knows at that point? Yeah, so none of this is black and white, but like, yeah, lending copious sums of money to someone with a gambling problem, just no strings attached, clearly enabling. Making excuses for a partner who neglects family obligations due to substance use. Now, this may make sense here and there. Like, let's say, you know, someone accidentally just went overboard, didn't eat enough and drank too much and then they have a hangover and they can't meet a very important family obligation that they needed to be there for. Sure. Sure, a couple I times. Mean, yeah, like also like white lies are kind of a thing. Like you don't need to be absolutely truthful to everybody. They're, they're not necessarily owed these things. No, and then there's boundaries of like, what do you tell certain people? But if, you know, if that person is, if it's like a one-off thing, like they don't actually have an addiction, then sure. But if they clearly, there's a problem and you're finding, you're fabricating these narratives all the time. And it's you're always trying to weave the webs of lies and keep them together. Even there, that was kind of careful because if you, you say all the time, like, well, I don't lie every day. I don't lie all the time. Right. It's, just, it's a regular occurrence is what we're saying. Because like, it will be painful and difficult to acknowledge in yourself. But if you find yourself doing these things, it may indicate there's something to look at there, there's something to inspect. We're not saying you're a bad person for doing it. It's actually quite natural, I would say, to try to like, you think you're doing the best you can to help this person to save face, to like allow maybe less judgment and pressure, which doesn't help with addiction, but it is something to be mindful of. Right. And so this whole topic is so great. It's hard to talk about with any precision. I mean, I don't know if you have any more points there, but if you don't, we can jump to the borderline. The borderlands. There's, there's quite a bit of points, but in, in general, letting people take their own responsibility, not being in this kind of savior, victim, villain triangle. They call it the drama triangle. Do you remember in, in that book, Codependent No More? The drama triangle is actually a thing independent of codependency. And there's another book called Radical Responsibility, where he really highlights the importance of this drama triangle and getting out of it. So the three parts are victim, villain, savior. And codependents will flip-flop between savior and victim. And victim. Yeah. Yes. So it's it's noticing when you're in this type of a dynamic, stepping out of a rescuer role, being there if somebody needs support with boundaries to protect yourself. Yeah. And there's another thing that came to mind when you were saying that is that being part of this can be, well, you might be like, why would anybody ever be in a codependent situation? Why wouldn't you just get out of it? If, it, if you see if it's bad, why don't you just leave? And that, I mean, it's well, one, it's kind of victim blaming, but two, there is some level of excitement to it that was described in the book where it's talking about how like there's the ups and the downs and like you're in kind of like this TV drama almost that your life is constantly, it's unknown what's going to happen. And oh man, this new thing. And while they are like openly negative things often, it's exciting or at least an escape from the humdrum life that might just be like some people, when you get stuck in this cycle, it can be difficult to break out of because once you get out of it, healthy, normal life is not a bunch of peaks and valleys of like extreme drama and like resolution and making up again that this is not healthy to be doing all the time. But it is stimulating. It is exciting. It is something to be talked about and thought about. And it can be enthralling in that way, like a good TV show. But it's not good for you. And that's one of the reasons why, like, in its own way, it can be kind of addictive in, like, the addictive drama side of it. 
Right. Yeah. It does resemble the cycles of addiction very much in terms of this very roller coaster ride, chaotic situation. Are you familiar with the cycles of domestic violence? Vaguely. Because I wonder if it may have some overlap with that as well, where it's like inciting events, then violence, then making up for it, then some brief period yeah, of lulls. Right. I'm familiar with it. I just don't know the exact terminology. Okay. I'm looking it up here and there's cycle of abuse, tension building, incident, reconciliation, calm. Okay, so I got them. Cool. Yeah, so like it seems, I don't know, what, the, what is the cycle of addiction like? Is it similar? That's the trans-theoretical model of addiction. Which, if you guys don't know what that is, I don't either. The trans-theoretical model of change. So pre-contemplation, contemplation, determination, action, relapse, maintenance. I guess similar enough, yeah, in that it's just a constant building, exploding, relative normalcy for a brief moment. Well, building, exploding, recovery, then relative normalcy. Seems to be the, the general cycle of all of them. Yeah, assuming the cycle of addiction necessarily goes into relapse, which is not necessarily Oh, yeah, the case it's true. I mean, none of these necessarily have to keep going because the cycles do break. Otherwise, they'd be literally trapped for the rest of eternity. Yeah. And so maybe we'll go into some academic literature because this stuff is all too nebulous for me right now. Yeah. I mean, even like I just mentioned borderline personality disorder, another very nebulous disorder, which apparently has a lot of overlap with this, which exactly is one of the difficulties of psychology. Why back in the day when you're like, how do they not know that? Like things that we take for granted now and things that we see that like kind of correlate together could be one thing or they could be two separate things like depression and anxiety go together quite frequently and so that may be something that is broadly described as a mood disorder but are they one disorder or are they two distinct disorders that just happen to feed into each other just like panic attacks and agoraphobia being afraid of being in public these things tend to go together and so the question is <laughs> because they're so nebulous so non-defined it's very difficult to, to pin each one individually like with say even like the way our brain works the way we have to go through that so say sleep for example, sleep is broken up to a bunch of different things, paralysis, vivid hallucinations, loss of consciousness, a couple other things. And then if we have something break where one of those falls off, then we know, oh, that's a distinct thing. And the only way we know about that most of the time is because a person had brain damage, just very specific, sometimes brain damage where we see, oh, they lost the ability to produce speech, but they can understand, they can write, they can read, they just can't speak. It's like, ah, okay, so speaking is its own thing. And so similarly, when it comes to these diagnoses, it can be difficult to figure out where the line is and where there could be multiple small things revolving around each other or one larger thing. But anyway, that's, that's a long-winded way to say that psych is really complicated. And so this is one of those areas where it's, it seems like there's something there, but we're still trying to figure it out. Yes. And as Stephen Hayes says, like it's not so useful to just botanize all of psychology. Yeah, that's a weird word to use for that, but what is he saying for that? Labeling? Like, you know, in botany, it's like about naming the various kind of species. Dissection, basically. Yeah, like making a dissection diagram, right? Labeling them. Yeah, so you have all these like different plants, for example, and all the variations of the different plants and the species and how they're related. And like the same had been done for psychology in the DSM. It's like we're just trying to label everything and that's only so useful. So you seem like you're hinting towards positive psychology, which I should also point out that like you and I are fans of the idea, but it seems like it's actually one of the more derided and controversial areas of psychology. In some circles, it's considered complete pseudoscience. It's just, we both like the spirit of it, which is what you're pointing out with the diagnostic stuff is that we're just figuring out these things are broken. Let's make them not broken. That is health, the lack of brokenness, but that's not quite the same thing. And so positive psychology's whole thing is like, we want to find a way to get people to 
thrive, not just be not broken, but actually thriving and happy. But it's, it's just been so difficult to actually find good research on it, or at least find good, consistent findings. I mean, the whole field of acceptance and commitment therapy is actually, I would argue it's in kind of a branch of behaviorism and not in this kind of positive psychology realm necessarily. Defining behaviorism is just looking at people's behavior. Don't incorporate at all the internal workings of the mind. Just look at behaviors. It's very objective. And I think it has the spirit of this. You know, it's kind of a blend of humanistic psychology with behavioral psychology. And so it's not just about let's name all of the broken things about people. It's kind of about how do we help people live lives that matter. And that's a lot of ACT therapy, especially the values pillar in the six pillars. Internal family systems is all about this. It's about getting people back to their default core self, which is inherently wise and intuitive. So there's things outside of positive psychology that are... I'm just going to brush past that, eh? Getting in touch with your natural self is inherently wise and intuitive I can agree with, but inherently wise? What do we mean by that? We'll have to do a whole episode on the, on the <laughs> it's like everyone is super wise if they just got out of their own way i mean maybe <laughs> Just note that that is a huge oversimplification. And if you want to learn more, Dr. Tori Olds on YouTube explains that about what is this self, what is IFS. And so what we're talking about is getting people toward thriving. Codependency is the exact opposite. They're just in survival mode, focusing on everyone else, obsessing over them, worrying about them, putting out fires, getting completely burned out. And where does this come from, one may ask? Why would somebody start to do something like this? And there was a recent study actually called The Lived Experience of Codependency and Interpretive Phenomenological Analysis that actually qualitatively takes people who identify with this category and looks at what does it mean for them and has this concept been useful for them. And so we can argue that if somebody receives this word in a way that's inappropriately applied, doesn't quite fit, and feels judgmental, then yeah, the word codependency is not good. And a lot of times, maybe it's not exactly what's happening. But if it is what's happening and it fits and it feels right and the person identifies with it, it can give a lot of insight, explain a lot of things and really help them out. Like if they read that book, Codependent No More, and they're like, wow, this is a thing. I thought it was just me. I didn't realize that there are ways to move forward. It can be very liberating. And that's what the study showed that this concept can be very useful for people in its explanatory. Yeah, I guess knowing what's wrong can be very empowering if it is accurate, if it fits perfectly like, oh crap, but that's why, like I thought I was just broken. And it's like, no, it's just actually this other thing going on. Right. Yeah. You're not broken. You are in a particular dynamic interpersonally that comes from somewhere. And we can, even if you were talking about internal family systems, IFS therapy, you would really bring it right back down to childhood. And you would look at some of these thoughts that the person's having in the present and recall, like, how far back does this go for you? And oftentimes, right back to childhood, maybe a parent had a problem with an addiction. Yeah, or just narcissism. I've met a few people where, like, as we've said, like, narcissism is kind of the addiction, addiction to the self esteem. And so everyone else serves the feed their narcissism. So everyone in the house could be in a weird codependent relationship. And if you're born into that context, then that's what you know to be normal. It's like, it'd be very difficult to get out of that. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's like unspoken rules, as they say, in the addicted family, whether it's a substance or behavior or narcissism, there's like these unspoken rules of like, we don't talk about the thing or everybody does these certain predefined categories. And if someone tries to break out of that, there's a lot of criticism and shame to keep you really in that. Yeah. I think everyone has, maybe everyone, I don't know, maybe I'm just relating too much with that. But like there's certain things you just want to avoid because of the amount of hassle that'll come from bringing that thing up. 
Right. There's a use for that. They call it gray rocking and recovery from narcissistic abuse, where you like intentionally, actively just don't confront it and you let go. This is not you giving in. This is you like having a boundary and just kind of detaching. Yeah, you don't rudely disregard them, but you also don't give them like if they're a narcissist and they're bragging about all their great exploits and all the people they've slept with and like their nice car and all these things. And like the expectation in the, I guess, polite thing, it would be like, I mean, depending on the sleeping with people, maybe not, but like, look at my nice watch. You're like, oh, this is a very flashy car. Look at this. And then they want you to fawn over them and be like, wow, oh my God. But Grey Rock would be like, oh yeah, cool. You got a new car. And just like kind of not feeding that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Easier in that context. A little harder to do if you're on the phone with like a narcissistic mother who's like demanding you do something for her and you can't. And then they start calling you selfish. Look at all the things I did for you. Yeah. I find that anytime somebody labels me with selfishness, it often is as a result of me choosing not to do something that is selfish for them. Yeah. It's this weird paradox where it's like if somebody labels that at me, I immediately think, am I being selfish or am I just having boundaries and they don't like it. No, that's exactly it. Yeah, it's, it's a form of manipulation and it's hard to do in that context, but that's why there's therapy out there, which kind of walks people through this, developing a practice of being able to do that. And this is only if you really can't block them out of your life completely. Ideally, you are not in these situations. But I mean, if you do need to keep in contact or want to keep in contact with a family member, then how do you do it? And this would be how this yeah. kind of gray rocking. I mean, the whole thing of like narcissists, you can't really treat the narcissist. You tend to treat the people around the narcissist. Right. <laughs> yes. But in the case of addiction, I mean, even narcissism is an addiction to oneself and maybe more stubborn, I guess, than, than other addictions, I would argue, because narcissism has this whole personality disorder component, which suggests a stubbornness because it's hard to change. Well, I mean, like, okay, so like if you're addicted to something, like say you're addicted to alcohol, you don't drink, you stop drinking, but like how the hell do you break away from just having somebody be like, wow, you did a good job. Like, oh no, that, that is, it's like somebody's forcing a drink down your throat then because like even if you were to like move back from the narcissism and be like, acknowledge it, you can't entirely remove yourself from the thing you're addicted to, supposing that that labeling and kind of structure, conceptual structure works. It's like you're constantly being tempted every day almost. It's like gambling addiction where yeah, money's everywhere. Whereas narcissism as addiction to yourself, it's like, well, what are you gonna do? Like a psychedelic trip for like several months to detox or something? <laughs> like I don't nah, go go self-handicap constantly and then purposely make things more difficult. But then if you do well, then I mean we talked about that in the last episode. <laughs> if you do well, then I guess you're like, look how great I am, even despite this handicapping. Oh, right. We're getting a little bit mental gymnastics-y right now. So I would argue, yeah, maybe narcissists have a more of a stubborn issue addiction is very stubborn but again it maybe doesn't fall into that personality disorder category that narcissism kind of falls into and a lot of psychology is suggesting that you can't change your personality as a lot of models would suggest i don't know if that's true because people do change after like often substantial traumatic events you could argue that they're just like having mental health stuff is getting in the way but other say more positive events like having a kid or i don't know even psychedelic trips can cause you to change in personality factors like i think psychedelics can make you more creative and having children makes you more conservative so i don't know if that's entirely true but yeah like that is one of the issues that people level towards personality disorders in general right they've been classified as this kind of insurmountable thing. Yeah, you are the problem. I like to not use that model, as you're aware, because as an addiction counselor, if you classified persons with an addiction as like having an insurmountable personality as addicted, like, well, there's no point because they're just 
destined to be addicted. But I mean, that's also the thing about personality. I remember taking the class personality psychology in my last year of university and going and being like, yeah, personality is definitely a thing. I definitely know what it is. And it's a very concrete <laughs> oh, thing. Oh, yeah, and it's right. like after leaving, you're like, do we even have personalities? What is personality? Is it just like, because like who you are with your friends versus with your grandma, with your boss, with your lover, like you're we're different people all the time. And there is consistencies between them. But it's like, which one is the true us? Like me in Mandarin, speaking Mandarin, I'm a very different person than speaking English. So is that my false self? Like, how does this work? So I think looking at that, I, I don't believe that it's a personality. I don't really subscribe too much to personality disorders. I think there's probably deeper things like maybe neurodivergence or something else, but likely not just personality itself. Right, right. Yeah. It's interesting how this conversation got into a discussion of like psychometrics and psychology is a field in general. It's because we kind of have to, because like with this particular disorder, it's not well defined for a reason because of the stuff that I've kind of delineated there. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, yeah, that makes sense, I guess. Yeah. So that's, that's why it maybe it feels like we're walking on eggshells. Ah, uh, that's what you're doing here. I'm like, Steve will do that. Usually he'll point out that it seems like we're doing this, like usually to bring me back on track. No, I mean, this whole conversation feels like walking on psychometric eggshells. Yeah. Cause it's like, we don't want to say anything too wrong and we want you to be aware that like the reason this is so hard to pin down is for these reasons the field is complicated but it seems like like i was keep saying it seems like there's something there and yeah hopefully it doesn't seem like we're too off course but we can go back like if you have more to say about it i catch myself feeling like i don't know what i'm talking about but it's not the problem of not knowing enough. It's a problem of knowing too much. And so every time I take a step out on a certain limb, I'm like, oh, there's all these other like... These other small supporting things that I should have talked about, but then forgot. And like, where do I begin and explain right. this? So I'm like tiptoeing around all of these other concepts and backstory and why this and why that. So that's that's kind of maybe describing the feel of this conversation, I guess. Mm, and that's a problem when Steve's having that issue because I am less good at bringing it back to the core and he's very good at that. And it's usually me that's like the kind that's flying off in various directions. Right, yes. The kite in the thunderstorm. Yeah, getting it struck. Yeah, so back to the research. There's one, two, three, four factors here that were highlighted, and we talked about the one codependency explains everything it's helpful for people because it shows them like oh this is a thing they don't feel like they're uniquely bad or broken another part of it is lacking a sense of self and codependency is an attempt to get a sense of self from doing more and you become like as they say a human doing rather than a human being that's what i was about to say that as well <laughs> right yes and if i just do enough maybe i'll get the love and belonging i need ah uh, this is very much overlapping with i don't know episode like 12 or something of emotional maturity where there is internalizers and externalizers and internalizers are that they think if I only fix myself and become valuable enough, then I will be loved. Yes. Which relates to another factor of this research here, a sense of abandonment and control in childhood. Uh, okay. So that one you, you sent to me and I was like, wait, so is it the lack of both or the over prevalence of one or like both? It's both. So like they abandon you and they control you. Yes, both. So let's think about it. What would that look like? When the parents are around, presumably it's the caretaker, let's say. The caretaker is around. They're very punitive and controlling, a lot of rules because I said so. But then when they're not there, they're just not there. And you're just completely left to your own devices. And I would assume because of that structure, like when they're around, you're completely dependent on them. And when they're not around, you're just basically adrift and have no idea what to do because they're always so dominating when they're around. I don't know. That's a cycle I kind of see. I, I would change the meaning of abandonment from like there versus not there emotionally then emotional because they can be there physically but not be there emotionally 
emotionally unavailable parents. Oh, so like being an addict, like they're just drunk on the couch. Yes. Yes. So when I say abandonment, like it's that sense that even if they're there, you can't rely on them. You can't rely on them. You may be parenting the parent. You can't go to them. And there may be some other emotional or psychological abuse where they're like making demands and calling you a bunch of names. And so you can feel abandoned by a parent who's rejecting you in that way, especially when they're present more so physically. So they're they're doing that kind of emotional and psychological abandonment while saying... And you can't go out with your friends and you can't do that and you have to do it this way. Oh, you want to study psychology? Ugh, you should go to med school. Like, so you're getting rejected in that sense of like you're highly invalidated. And so that's a form of, being, I guess, abandoned in, in some sense. Well, abuse, clearly. And controlled. So at the same time, you're being abandoned and controlled when someone says, oh, you want to do that? Oh, you should do this. So you're being rejected and controlled. Uh, right. The authentic you is being rejected. Like you're invalidated in that. Oh, what you want? Oh, that's not valid. Well, you said it was abandonment control, right? So I guess rejection is a part of that abandonment. Abandonment could be like a sense of rejection overtly or just not being present, but also an emotional abandonment. Or it's like, I'm not going to give you love. By rejecting them, you're emotionally abandoning them. Yeah. Unless you be what I want you to be, I will not love you. Yes that yeah dance for me yes and and so this really creates a dynamic where the person has a very insecure sense of self or no sense of self and they become completely dependent on their self-worth on how much they can do for that person so they become an appendage of that person yeah and they become a chameleon so there's the, the, the other concept here chameleon self they kind of learn to fit in like a chameleon to situations and, and there's some overlap with borderline in that there's a sensitivity to abandonment. There's a highly invalidated childhood. But there's a difference here because rather than relational insecurity, it's like highly fixated relational situation where instead of like you're kind of bouncing out of the, the relationship or going in and out, bouncing around to other relationships, it's more so you're like fixed and, and enmeshed in this one, whether it's a partner or significant other or whatever. Yeah, some of that hits close to home. That was number two. What is this list again? Just a reminder. Uh, one, two, three. I already went through three. It's in that article, a lived experience of codependency. And the other one is seesawing through extremes in life. So emotional and occupational imbalance. Yeah, this is a huge one that you wouldn't necessarily pick up until it happens in ongoing counseling, where someone will be all in, like very much dedicated in a way that is strangely perfect. It's like, I'm going all in. I'm committed, dedicated, motivation is ramped up to 100 and then like zero. So there's an imbalance, like a seesaw in uh, engagement. So it can be very sporadic in a sense. So that's another feature of it that we never really touched on. I mean, we kind of touched on it a little bit with the addiction to the drama of the ups and the downs kind of. It's sort of related, but this is the list of criteria you found for codependence, right? Based on the lived experience of codependence. Yeah, so it's not like a diagnostic criteria by any means. It's a qualitative study, so it's a small sample size. You have to define what qualitative means. Oh, studying fewer numbers of people to gather their lived experience of something rather than quantitative, which is... Numbers and large number of people. Tens of thousands of people. Yeah, but I don't think it's just the size. I think it's also qualitative by necessity. It has to be smaller, but it's usually to do with like more abstract, nebulous, emotional stuff. There are usually no numbers, I think, involved, whereas quantitative is like there's numbers involved where we can do statistics to them. Yes. In quantitative, you're finding correlations, whereas qualitative, you're finding meanings. 
They're like, what does it mean for someone who has this? What are the themes? That's, I mean, that was my research. So we're running a little bit out of time. Is there anything else you wanted to cover here? No. If some of this resonates, particularly about the parental situation, highly recommend checking out our episode on emotional immaturity. Is that, is that what we called it? I think it is. Something like that. I'll link it. Emotional immaturity. Because it, it goes deeper down that rabbit hole of parent-child dynamics, and it can help people make sense of maybe some of what might be underlying this. Yeah. So just to recap, it's basically codependence is a very not well-defined and not diagnosable disorder sort of thing. It's usually, I guess, a relationship between two people. Typically, one is an addict of some sort often, but not necessarily, I think. The other one is the person that is kind of propping them up and enabling, if we like with that term, but they kind of facilitate the person that's having the issues is like allowing them to continue doing the things they're doing. And the reason they do this is because they think they're helping them. They think that they're doing good things and they're needed. They're actually, they have a level of control and importance by playing this role because they are very important to the other person. The other person will fall apart without them, they believe. And so they are stuck in this kind of cycle where they can't break out of it. It's bad for both typically. And I guess the term comes from being like the person that's dependent on substances, you are co-dependent as if you're cooperating with them in their dependence. Anything I missed with this? Like that's the broad strokes of it. Yeah. You always do such a good job at recapping everything. As if you've oh, thank you. taken notes or something. I don't know. I always wonder. But what stood out for me in that was the need to be needed is really a way to say it. And I don't mean this in the way that like you should be a rugged individualist and not need people. No, our core social needs are very real to who we are. But getting mad at somebody for not leaning on you often enough is not, that's getting a bit far. Like we all like to be there for people, but if you feel like I must be needed, if people don't need me, what am I? Yeah, that's where it becomes a problem. Very much. Because the healthy need to be needed is, hey, I'm good on my own and I'm good with others and needing to be needed makes life meaningful. We fit into social roles where we can contribute, have a sense of meaning and purpose. But what we're talking about is not that. It's this level of, and if this person doesn't need me, I'm worthless. It really is quite a situation where it fuels a drama triangle and very unhealthy. Between victim, savior, and villain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Anyway, I <laughs> guess that's it for this week. We'll probably <laughs> reach back to this in other episodes in the future, but hopefully it was coherent enough and you learned something. Hopefully. Also, please leave reviews on Apple, iTunes stuff, or on Spotify, which I uh, you can't write anything there, but anywhere and spread the word. That'll be very helpful to help us continue growing. So thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Bye. Hold on. I got to let this cat out. He was sleeping the entire time beside me. And then suddenly near the end, he was like, man, man, let me out.